verse 1, John says, In the Word, in the beginning, was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. And it was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not grasped it. It's not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But who all who did receive him... Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but from God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him. That is the summary of the Gospel of John. And this morning we are going to look at scene 2. Last week we are scene 1, verses 1 to 13. The Word enters His creation. And we don't have time to review that this morning. I encourage you to grab an outline on the back table and that you can get the lesson online and listen to it there. But this morning we really come to the high point of this whole um, introduction. The Word is the supreme revelation of God's glory. So think back to the first section where we were last week. What was the primary Old Testament text that was the background to verses 1 to 13? It was what? Genesis 1, the creation. Well, this morning we're going to see that John goes to another Old Testament text as his background, and it is Exodus 33 to 34. And as we go through, it's going to be crystal clear why that's the, why that's the case and why that is so important. So let's dive in. Look there on your outline, the very first Point, John begins by telling us that Jesus is superior to Sinai. You say, well, Michael, where do you get that? I don't see that anywhere. Well, let's read it, and we'll unpack it, and I hope you will see it. Verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John goes back to this title, The Word. He hasn't used this title since verse 1, he's drawing our attention all the way back to verse 1 at the identity of this one he's been talking about, the Word. Who is the Word? He was in the beginning. He was in an intimate relationship with God, and he was none other than God, the eternal, self-existent, second person of the Trinity. John reminds us of him. The Word, and what he says next is absolutely shocking. What does he say? He says, the Word became flesh. The eternal God, the creator, comes 
flesh. And John could have chosen many ways to express this. He could have said, the word became a man. He became a person. He took on a body. But he chooses a very physical word. He became flesh of the same substance as what he created. The word shine on mankind as light. Remember verse 3, it says he shines a man as light. And now John says this, that tells us that he doesn't just shine a man as light from a distance. He shines a man as light by becoming of the same substance as his creation. It's amazing. Back in Psalm 113.6, it says this. It says, the Lord humbles himself. He brings himself low to look on the things that are in the heavens and in the earth. In other words, it's humbling for God just to look at his creation. And here John says that he doesn't just look at it, he becomes a part of it while not ceasing to be God. This is incredible love and condescension. It's the very heart of Christianity, what we have right here. Eternal God, the infinite God, takes on finite, frail human nature. Mind blowing. But what does this have to do with Sinai, you say? Look at that next line. The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. The word is literally, he pitched his tent among us. He tabernacled among us. Is the word. It's the same word used in the Greek Old Testament. It's the word used of the tabernacle in Sinai that the Lord commanded to be constructed, made as a dwelling place for God among his people. You think back to Genesis 3, what is, was the primary thing that happened in Genesis 3 after the fall? The dwelling place of God was no longer with man. And you see, after Genesis 3, all the way through salvation history, God is on a mission to restore this primary thing that was lost at the fall. Restoring the dwelling place of God with man. And it goes all the way through the Bible. And he does it through covenant. He does it as he covenants with Abraham. And then now in, in Sinai, he comes and he brings his holy presence among his people through the tabernacle. That is what is going on um, in the old covenant. Look back with me to Exodus, uh, Leviticus first. Leviticus 26. Let me show you. This is the point of the covenant. And this is what God is doing in the tabernacle. Look at Leviticus 26. We're going to be flipping between John and Exodus, Leviticus a number of times this morning. So keep your finger here. Leviticus 26. Look what he says. It's amazing. Leviticus 26 verse 11. Leviticus 26 11 says, I will make my dwelling place among you. Literally my tabernacle. Among you. My soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you, Garden of Eden language, and you will be, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. That's the goal of the covenant, and that is how God's going to do it. It's going to be through his tabernacle, later to be replaced by the temple. Now flip back to Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40. Verse 34. You know, God gives Moses this very long, detailed description of how the tabernacle is to be made. And here is what happens once it is completed. Verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. 
and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God comes in the fullness of his glory amongst people. Now, um, I wonder how many of you could come up here and finish the sermon for me. What is John's point? What is John saying? I think John is saying that in the same way, actually in an even greater way, God has come to dwell with his people. He's done so not ultimately through the tabernacle, but through the God-man, the Word made flesh. Jesus is the ultimate tabernacle. Jesus is the ultimate dwelling place of God with man. Jesus is the ultimate place of worship. He's the ultimate access point between man and God. He replaces the temple. That's what John is saying. He's the ultimate fulfillment of God's purposes in salvation history and the ultimate display of God's glory. Exodus 40, 34 said what? What filled the tabernacle? It said what? The glory of the Lord. Now look back at John 1, 14. What does he say? The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we've beheld his glory. Same idea. And in a very real sense, God's glory has been put on an even greater, clearer display in the incarnation than it was in the tabernacle. That's what John is saying. And he says we've seen it. John says we have beheld his glory. Now what does that mean? Who's he talking about? Who's the we? First, the we is the eyewitnesses. It's John and the other disciples who beheld him with their eyes. But I think it's a little bit more than just they beheld Christ with their physical eyes. Because many, we've said this already, many beheld Christ with their physical eyes and did not see his glory. They crucified him. This is more than just beholding him by sight. John says we've beheld his glory in the sense that we've seen his glory by faith in what he has revealed. Especially what he accomplishes in his death and his resurrection. Back a few verses earlier, we saw in verse 12, who are those who receive him? It is those who were born from God. Which tells me that it's not just the disciples here. It is every reader of the Gospel of John who's been born again who sees his glory. All of us confess with John, we too have seen his glory. And as we come to this Gospel and as we see Jesus portrayed here, we see his glory. That's what John is calling us to, and that's what happens as we come away from this book. It's what it means to be a believer. We've already talked about this. This is what the essence of faith is. By faith you see him and receive him, and all that he is, and all of his glory, all that he's revealed about himself. That brings us to the next part of verse 14. He's the ultimate display of the glory of God's character. What is the nature of this glory? Look what John says. We've seen his glory. Well, what kind? Well, it's glory as of the only Son from the Father. Your version might say the only begotten. This is a favorite word of John. John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. 
The idea is, it's the one and only, the unique, one of a kind, most loved son who's the perfect reflection of his father. In other words, this is nothing other than God's glory itself on display through the person of Jesus Christ. This is God's glory. This is the glory as of the perfect Son. But what did this glory consist of? So we saw glory. What is that glory, you say? Well, certainly it's the glory of his condescension. It's the glory of his eternal person. But John takes us another step further. Look at the last line. We've seen his glory full of grace and truth. But what does that mean? I'd like to invite you to turn back with me to Exodus 33. Keep your hand here. Go to Exodus 33 and keep this phrase, grace and truth, in mind. Grace and truth. This is his glory, John says. You know, Exodus 33, God has been in the process of declaring his covenant with Israel. And while he's given the commandments to Moses, what does Israel do? They go and make a golden calf. It is high-handed rebellion. It is equivalent to a bride just finished saying her vows and goes and commits adultery with another man. It's high-level treason and adultery. And God is ready to wipe them out. (laughs) Wipe them out, start over with Moses. And Moses prays for the people, and God relents. And then God tells Moses, I'm not going to wipe them out, but my presence is not going to come among them, lest I wipe them out again, or be tempted them. And Moses prays for them again, and the Lord relents and says, okay, I'll bring my presence back among you. That's the whole purpose of the covenant. Moses said, don't leave us, you must come with us. And then look down at verse 18. Chapter 33, verse 18. Moses prays another request. Moses said, please show me your glory. Moses asked God for a special manifestation of his glorious presence that God has just promised would come back to Israel. His glory is his presence with Israel. Moses says, show me that glory. And look how the Lord responds in verse 19. He said, I will make all my, what? Goodness Goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whomever I'll be gracious. And I'll show mercy on whomever I show mercy. And I think what he's saying here is that God's glory consists in what? His glory consists in the display of his goodness. What is his goodness here? It is his free, grace, lavish, and whoever he pleases. That's his glory. Well, look now over at chapter 34. Here is where he gives Moses just what he promised. It's going to show something that is the very foundation of the covenant. Yahweh tells Moses to bring new tablets to the mountain. They're going to renew this covenant. But he first is going to reveal the essence of his glory. This is the very foundation of the covenant. This is the very reason why he's going to renew the covenant. This is the very reason why he's not wiping Israel off the map. This is the very reason why Israel's going to have any hope of existing. Look what he says. Verse 5. 
The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The name, his character, who he is. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in chesed ve'emet, steadfast love and faithfulness, grace, and truth are the same words. Keeping steadfast love with thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who by no means will clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the children, and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is the Mount Everest of the Old Testament. If you've read the Old Testament, these verses are repeated more than any other verse in the entire Old Testament. And there's a reason. This is the only foundation of the covenant. This is the only reason God would covenant with his sinful people and not wipe them out. This is their only hope. It's the character of God. And it's his free, undeserved mercy and patience with the worst kind of sin. In other words, while God judges sin, does God judge sin? He does. He did in this passage. He tells us it's not what he delights in. It's not what is fundamental to his character. He delights in mercy. It says he shows steadfast love to thousands of generations. In other words, it's inexhaustible. That's what he loves. And then we get this phrase that we get very similar in John. Steadfast love and faithfulness, grace and truth. It has the idea of covenant loyalty, unmerited grace and favor. And faithfulness is the idea of trustworthiness, reliability. It can be depended on. So in other words, he's not just gracious sometimes and merciful sometimes. He's reliable. You can count on him for mercy. You can run to him knowing to expect mercy from him. That is how God revealed the core of his glory to Moses. That's what his glory consists in. Now, put it another way. The primary way that God seeks to show his glory to reveal his glory is in the display of his abundant grace and faithfulness. Put it one more way. God shows abundant grace and faithfulness to sinners ultimately for the sake of his glory. That's what he's at. That's the core of his nature on display. That is his glory. Now go back to John. John 1.14. the same phrase. Look what he says. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. We've seen his glory. The glory is of the only Son from the Father, full, abounding, overflowing in grace and truth. I think what John is telling us is that God's character of abundant, free, faithful grace and mercy to sinners which is the very core of his glory, was put on the clearest display of the incarnation of the Son of God. His character of grace and faithfulness was put on display as God becomes man, listen, to become the very means whereby sinners might be reconciled to God. Well, how does he do that? By taking his own judgment on himself. That is glory. 
friends. That's glory. That is what Christ came to do. We've seen his glory. Jesus is superior to Simon. Everything that happened there, the tabernacle, and the display of God's glory. But next we come to verse 15. Jesus is also superior to John the Baptist. It says, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. John the Baptist comes at the center of this section, just like he came at the center of the previous section, verses 1 to 13. Well, why is that? Is John the center of attention? No, he's not. Well, why, why does the Apostle John stick John the Baptist there? I think it's in order to teach us something about the function of John's ministry and also how to understand everything that preceded Jesus, the whole Old Testament. What's going on here? One would expect that the one who comes first has priority. The one who comes first has supremacy. That's how the Jews would have thought. That's how many cultures would think. Uh, many cultures, the ancestors are deserve great respect. They came first. They have priority. But John's message is a little bit different. He tells us first Jesus' position in history John's whole message was that Jesus comes after him. He was a pointer to Jesus who's coming after. Jesus came after John, and Jesus came after the prophets, and he came after Moses, and after the whole Old Testament. But then John declares Jesus' position and priority. The best, the greatest fulfillment of God's revelation and of his glory has come last in the person and work in Jesus Christ. All who came before him simply pointed to him. John, and the prophets, and the whole Old Testament. You say, well, why? How's that the case? Look what John says. He who comes after me ranks before me. He's superior to me because he was before me. So here's the point. The one who existed from eternity, the word of God was before John and before Abraham. Jesus said before Abraham was what? I am. He's come to mankind last of all as the final climactic revelation of God that everything has been building up to to this point. John's just the bridge. He came before Jesus but he did so to point to the superiority of Jesus over everything. Which leads us to the third point. Jesus is superior to Moses in the whole Old Covenant. Not only does Jesus' superiority exceed John the Baptist, he's superior to Moses. Well, in, what, in what way? Well, first, verse 16 tells us that he is the inexhaustible source of grace for those who receive him. Moses wasn't a source of grace, he just pointed to it. Jesus was it in bodily form. Look at verse 16, it says, From his Fullness. There's that same word. We've all received grace upon grace. This verse connects us back to verse 14. You told me, what are some key words between verse 14 and this verse that, that connects us together? You see them? There's the word 
fullness, right? What's another word? Grace. And then this idea of we received, it's another weaver. We received, verse 14, we beheld, we received. John's one is to read these verses together. And also, you don't see it in your English. In Greek, there's a because there. So verse 16 says, because, connecting this back to verse 14. So here's what I think John is saying. Because we've come to know him as the ultimate source of God's grace and have received the grace that he offers, for this reason we've seen his glory. It's one thing to see the glory of Niagara Falls in a picture. Who's been in Niagara Falls? New Yorkers here? Yeah? Okay? I've never been. I've seen it in pictures. <laughs> but it's another to go there yourself and feel it's missed in your face. In a very real sense, you have yet to behold the glory of Niagara Falls until you've gone there and taken it all in in person. In the same way, John is saying that it is as we receive grace from Christ that we may behold his glory, as it's been explained in verse 14. No one has come to behold the fullness of his glory who has not first bowed to this fountain and received all that he offers. You want to see his glory? Come here. Come to his grace. Having absolutely nothing, bow to this spring, this fountain, and drink, and drink, and drink until eternity. That is how you'll come to see His glory. And the more we drink, not only to the end of our life, but to the end of eternity, the more we'll realize that this is an inexhaustible fountain. It never budges an inch. It's inexhaustible. Come to Him. Receive Him. Day by day. That is how you will behold his glory. That's what John says. But then verse 16 ends with this very interesting phrase. It says, even... My, my translation, ESV, says, um, verse 16, in grace upon grace. Some translations say, in one blessing upon another, or something like that. It's literally, even grace in the place of grace. Now what in the world does that mean? Well, I think if we've been tracking with John's train of thought, we're going to see where he's going to go in verse 17. It becomes crystal clear, I think, what he's talking about. Grace in the place of grace. God's abundant grace and truth were revealed to Moses on Sinai. Exodus 34. We just saw it. The only reason he didn't wipe them out was owing to his character. And again, I don't know what you think about when you think about the Old Testament, when you think about Sinai, but God's grace ought to be front and center. It is grace. It is not anything less than grace. But John is saying now, by the coming of the Word into flesh, there comes a greater, fuller manifestation of Exodus 34 grace. <laughs> the grace of the Old Covenant is replaced by the grace of of the new covenant in the word made flesh that dwelt among us. This is not something entirely different. This is just something greater of a better kind. Which leads us right to verse 17. You'll notice verse 17 begins with a for or a because. 
And it tells us that Jesus is superior to Moses as he is the supreme source of God's grace. Verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Why is it that the grace we receive through Jesus exceeds or replaces the grace in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant? It's because of verse 17. Verse 17 is not so much a contrast between Moses and Jesus. Some of your translations say the law is given through Moses, but grace and truth is given through Jesus Christ. There's no but in Greek. This is more of a comparison than it is a contrast. He's saying just as Moses mediated God's covenant with God's people, mediated God's grace, mediated God's word, God's law to his people, in the same way, and actually in an even greater way, God's grace and truth came from Jesus Christ. Jesus is the greater Moses, is what John is saying. He does not simply receive God's word, receive God's law, receive God's grace and communicate to his people. He is God's word. He is God's law. He is God's grace in bodily form manifested to God's people. That is what John is telling us. It brings us to the last point. Verse 18, Jesus is the superior revelation of God. And you probably thought we were done with the Exodus parallels, but I have one more. Go back to Exodus 33. Hold your finger here. Actually, before you do it, let me read it. No one has ever seen God the only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. Go back to Exodus 32. Verse 20. Remember the prayer? Moses, show me your glory. God says, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. And look what he says next. Exodus 33. Verse 20. But, he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I'll take away my hand, and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. You cannot look at God unveiled fully. Go back to John. John says the same thing. <laughs> Confesses the invisibility of God. No man at any time can look upon God. Not even Moses. Moses caught a glimpse, the backside of God's glory. But then look at the next one. He says, the one and only God. It's the same word, the monogamous, the one and only begotten, the only son. Clearly identifies him here as God. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only God, the Son, has seen him. Who is he? He's the one and only who's in the bosom of the Father, in an intimate relationship with God. In verse 1 it said he was with God from eternity. He's seen the unveiled fullness of the glory and the character of God. Only Jesus has. But look at John's conclusion. That's what has made him known. The Greek is literally, he has exegesitized the Father. He has exegeted the Father. He has fully, clearly, perfectly, more than Moses or anyone else, given the fullest, clearest display of the person and character of God. 
only the one. And ultimately, how? Through his death, through his resurrection, the core of God's character has been put on display greater than it ever has in salvation history. Jesus Christ is the one through whom we come to know God, and he is the way we will behold God throughout eternity. You will look at God, but it will be in the face of Christ. Glory. So the word has entered his creation. The word is the supreme revelation of God's glory. He's superior to Sinai. He's superior to John the Baptist. He's superior to Moses in the Old Covenant. And he's the superior revelation of God to man. Before we go, I want to just take a couple minutes Think through some points of application with you. First, is that the main point of application is simply behold his glory. Behold him. Behold him in his glory of his. And you will not see this glory that he said until you come and bow and receive his grace that he offers. So meditate often on the cross. Meditate often on what he accomplished for you. This is not something, yeah, I did that back in the day. Come to this fountain every day. You need him every day. Confess sin. Clay was preaching last few weeks, Sunday nights. What a privilege it is to confess our sins because as we do it, we come to this fountain and drink and drink and drink of grace that we don't deserve. Beholding the glory of Christ is not just a means to an end. It's not, okay, we do this so that we can get something else. It is the end. It's what we'll be doing for eternity, and we must begin now. Nobody looks over the edge of the Grand Canyon and wonders what the response should be. There's many implications, like the nearness of death, you step over the edge. But the application, the proper response is crystal clear. And it's simply to wonder and awe at its goal. And that's the goal here. It's God's purpose in the incarnation is to reveal his glory, and therefore our ultimate response is worship. It's worship. Behold his glory. We've seen his glory. And the call as we go through the Gospel of John is that we would behold his glory more and more and more. Second, the call is for you and I to receive him. His whole person is the eternal word. Everything he's revealed about himself. And the forgiveness of sins. And again, I say, um, you might tell me, Michael, I've done that. I did that 10 years ago. So praise the Lord. But if you've done that, then you will keep doing it. You'll do it every day. It's a fountain that we don't come to once and never return again. We come here. We live here for the rest of eternity. So that's John's prologue. That's his introduction. It is packed full. Hope you've seen some of the glory that's in it. It is 10:15, uh, right? At dismissal time. Is there any questions? Any comments? I know I've flown through these past two lessons, haven't had a lot of chance for discussion. Uh, it's just because there's just so much jammed in here. Uh, lessons to come. Hopefully, we can open it up, have some discussion as we go through. Uh, I wanted to get through the prologue because it's the introduction. We're going to unpack all of this. Uh, in the weeks to come as we, we go through the gospel. So, um, questions, comments? Yes? Can you explain what you meant by the Mount Everest of the Old Testament? What yep. You mean I just mean it's like the high peak. 
it's just, it, so you think of the landscape of the Old Testament, there's all these important events that happen. This is like, boom, the big one. The one that all of them center around. It's the foundation of it all. So, yeah. Yep. Anything else? Well, I'm excited to get into John. Uh, it's the gospel of glory, is what I would call it. So, looking forward to it. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth. And we confess we do not behold the glory of Christ as we ought. And we ask for your grace here. Open our eyes more and more that we would receive him. And so behold him as he truly is, full of grace and truth. Prepare us for the service to come, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, we're dismissed. And there is no praise factor tonight. There's a family gathering. Come tonight, baptism, Lord's Supper.